We are journeying through the letter of First John. It's written uh, to a church in Ephesus, and uh, we've had three messages already, and this one is, is kind of moving us into a new space in the letter. Uh, the last couple have kind of set the background and the tone for the letter, uh, especially the fact, uh, as Pastor Hayden talked about last week, that we are really God's children. And so one of the questions we could ask as, as this letter unfolds then is, how do we live as God's children in the world? How do we make our way through this life as God's children? And most of the, the uh, chapter 3 and certainly mo- uh, chapter 4 really are wrestling with that type of question. How do we, how do we live as God's children? What does it look like? How do we how do we make choices and decisions, and, and how do we do this? And it's that type of, of context that we're encountering here. Uh, before I start walking us through the text, one other thing this, to notice is, is the language that John is using. And oftentimes we hear uh, about the Bible and the commands in the Bible, and we think, man, it's heavy-handed. And and sometimes you get the sense that Christianity can be kind of grumpy and all of that. But hear the affection that's in this text. Dear friends, dear children, and in fact, if you read the whole of 1 John, he comes back to that language again and again and again. What, what's really happening here is, is John's speaking to a community of people, and he's, he's saying, folks, we're not enemies. This isn't a scary thing. This is, this is like a family conversation. And, and he's operating with the assumption and the desire that we all love one another. That we all, all are in this together. And there is a deep sense of affection that he's trying to communicate even as he gives some commands and directions for what we need to do. So hear the commands and directions in this context of love and faithfulness. Testing the spirits. How do we know what we are hearing is really from God? I mean, in some sense, that, that's the real question he's trying to answer for the people in Ephesus that he's writing to. They're hearing all sorts of voices, and, and their question is, is this really from God? Is, is what we're being taught really from God, and how do we know? A few things about that context there. Ephesus is a highly spiritual global city as much as any city was in that day and age. It had trade routes going through it that that brought goods from all over the known world all through uh, that part of the Roman Empire. There were were all sorts of of idols in the city and temples to God, uh, to different gods that that just flooded the city. In fact, if you read the letter, uh, the book of Acts, and you read through it, Ephesus becomes one of the places that Paul spends a lot of time and actually gets in a lot of trouble. (laughs) Not just Paul, but others, because because of the industry that had risen up around, temp, uh, around worship of other gods. And, and when Christianity started taking root there, it actually negatively impacted the economics of the city because so much of it was built around idol worship. 
And as a result, this whole riot uh, starts up in the city. The context uh, that John is writing to in Ephesus here is that same type of city. It's that same city where, where there's all this, this spiritual awareness and all sorts of different ways and ideas about how you're supposed to worship God and even who God is. And, and the last thing you wanted to do in that city was make an exclusive claim about who God was. That's part of this context. There's also no New Testament yet. Well, if we think about it, we go, oh yeah, that's right. They're writing the New Testament about the stories that happened there. But it's important for us to remember, there's no New Testament yet. I mean, at, at, at uh, kind of the best scholarship says somewhere around 80 to 90 A.D. is when John's writing these letters it's about, you know, 50-ish years, 60 years after Jesus had lived. There's lots of oral stories that have been passed around. It's people as they travel, and they would say, hey, did you hear what happened in Jerusalem? And the word kind of spread through relationships like that. There was a group of Christians that had gone up to Antioch and, and started sharing the faith there, and gradually the faith made its way to Rome even and, and past Rome there was no written New Testament yet. At least not how we would understand it. There was no Apostles' Creed yet. Athanasian Creed didn't show up for another, no, 600 plus years. (laughs) These teachings of the church that we kind of take for granted in the Bible that we take for granted, they didn't have yet in written form. And so most of what they taught about Jesus and about what it meant to live life under the lordship of Jesus came through people passing on stories. This is what God's at work doing in my life. This is the story that I heard about Jesus. Have you heard that story yet? There were traveling preachers. We didn't have credentials to make sure a preacher was trained properly. They didn't have any of that like we do today. And so someone would show up and say, I have a word from God. And the people there would go, okay, let's listen. And so part of the question that arises in this context is how do we know that this person who just showed up is actually speaking really the true word of God? How do we know? And on top of that, there's not many people alive at this point who who actually knew Jesus. If you remember the way John started this letter, he said, we know the truth. He's the one we've, we've touched, we've sat with, we've listened to, we ate with. He, he's kind of trying to say at the beginning of this letter, I really saw him. He really was alive. He wasn't just some legend in the Judean countryside. He was a real person and we actually walked with him already hitting a point in Ephesus where it's kind of Jesus has a little bit more legend than reality to him. So John's trying to root in that Jesus really physically was alive. And then we encounter what became two heresies related to each other very early in the second century, and they're already showing up here in Ephesus. Probably this was the starting place for these two heresies, what we call Gnosticism and Docetism. 
Gnosticism was, was an idea that came up in the, the Greco-Roman world that time where they said it's about the secret knowledge. If you have the right knowledge, you're going to be saved. And it wasn't just in the church, it became a general philosophy. It was about acquiring as much knowledge as you can, and especially secret knowledge. And if you had the secret knowledge, you could be successful in life. And inside the church, that started to take root where people said, if you only had the right set of teaching, if you only had the right ideas, then you would be saved. But that focus on knowledge led towards docetism. And docetism began to say that Jesus only appeared to be human. He didn't actually come in the flesh. He didn't take on bodily form. And the reason for that was rooted in this Gnostic teachings was that the Gnostics said because knowledge was the way to salvation, spiritual things were what mattered and the body didn't matter anymore. It didn't matter. In fact, it wasn't just that it didn't matter, but but that the body was somehow dirty. Physical things were, were less than what was truly supposed to be real and important. And so docetism ended up saying, you know what? This whole story about Jesus coming in the flesh, it, it couldn't have happened because God of the universe would never lower himself to actually be found in human form. Humanity's dirty. The problem with the world is humanity. Well, that's true. But they went so far to say it's not even worth saving. In fact, the hope is we all escape our bodies someday. And there's no way a God would come and actually live in a human body. He just kind of appeared. He was like a mirage. He was kind of here. But not really. And so in that context, John is trying to, trying to say, folks, this is, how, this is how we discern God's will. This is how we know if it's really God speaking to us. This is how we understand what is right and true and what is false. And before we hear John's response and what he said there, I, I want to frame our context for a moment. Because it's not quite the same as John's context, but it does have some overlap. We're a culture that has global interactions. It used to be that we would say you had to go overseas to encounter other religions, and we kind of said that naively. But nowadays, many of us work and interact with people who hold to other religions on a daily basis. Our neighbors might be Hindu or atheist or Islamic. They might practice a native religion. There's all sorts of world religions that are around us and that we encounter on a daily basis. We see the cultures and languages of the world, and and like Ephesus was back then, we find that our own computers (laughs) operate that way that we interact with the ideas and the cultures of the world and many of them arguing and saying who is God and, and where do we find God and those type of conversations come up. And the one dangerous thing for Ephesus is also a dangerous thing in our culture to claim that there is one true God, 
to claim the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And in this day and age, with our global interactions, that's seen as something that should not be done. So we have some similarities to Ephesus there. We have, in our day and age, different than Ephesus, we have unparalleled theological access, especially in our Western context. We have access to theological libraries. We have access to all sorts of centuries worth of teaching. I mean, think about it. We, we have almost 2,000 years worth of the church's teaching that we can draw on and learn from and help us in discerning God's will and if it's God speaking to us. We have a whole wealth of resources in fact, we, we spend money, we send money as part of our giving to the Christian Reformed Church. We, we send money to support Calvin Seminary to train up theological people who will help us to think theologically about the brokenness in the world, about where God's presence is in the world. But we're also becoming more biblically illiterate. We are becoming a culture, even within the church, where we don't know the full scope of the the biblical story. We don't know how to find things in Scripture. We don't even sometimes know how to use Scripture. Some of us talk about being confused about opening it up, and we we go, "Ah, I'll just wait till Sunday, and they'll say something about the Bible there. We're hesitant to open the Word of God on our own, We're hesitant to open it outside of Sunday morning. We're learning. We have more access and more knowledge available to us about the history and the global church, and we somehow use it less than generations before us. There is an explosion of spiritual and Christian publishing and communication. Now, this might not be in the traditional sense of books being published, There's all sorts of debate about that, but certainly there's all sorts of podcasts that we can listen to. There's all sorts of stuff that's being given to us on the internet, and and we're encountering somewhat of that similar itinerant, itinerant preacher, those traveling preachers from the early church, except they're not traveling to our churches to talk to us. They're traveling through our computers and through our phones to talk to us. And in the same problem that came up in the early church of, of, is this person really speaking truth? And how do we know they're speaking truth? Well, that's happening in our culture today. We have so many people who claim, I speak for Jesus. I speak for the church. I'm telling you what the Christian view is. And we find ourselves going, I'm not sure. Is this really true? Is this not? How do we know? John was fighting for one generation after Jesus. We're almost 2,000 years after Jesus. There's no one left alive. Some of us may feel old, but we're not 2,000 years old. None of us have seen Jesus in the flesh. None of us have encountered him the way that John and Peter and James and those early apostles did. So we have a gap, and in that gap, what happens is more and more that Jesus becomes a a myth and an idea in the past rather than a real human being who lived in the flesh. We find ourselves in some similar places. And then we have this. Jamie Smith calls it the liturgies of the mall. 
but we could add music and movies. We have so much coming in at us, and, and daily we're being told who we are and, and the problem in the world that often you don't have enough, you need this product in order to make your life worthwhile. We're being told again and again what is of value and what is not of value. We have that constant barrage, and so in the midst of all these voices, how do we make our way? Our world belongs to God. It's one of the documents that the Christian Reformed Church wrote in the 80s and then rewrote again about 10 years ago. And one of the phrases they use, it, it talks about being in this world where millions face confusing choices. And they add another phrase in it later on that says, how do we make decisions at life's raw edges? We're a people who live in a world that is full of ideas about who God is and how we should live in this world. And, and those voices seem to be competing and they hit us again and again so that we find ourselves in places where we're like, I just don't know. This is what I'm going to do. And we lack that sense of certainty and assurance of God being with us and leading us. So in that context, John gives three means of testing the spirit, spirits, and, and he gives those as gifts of God's grace to us. He names them, and the first one is this, to ask the question, was Jesus Christ truly human? In that context where, where there's Gnosticism going on and, and Docetism, he says, you know, we got to come back to who Jesus Christ is. And if that question about Jesus Christ's humanity can't be answered, then don't believe that this voice is from God. He's doing what we do in our Reformed tradition. He's putting Christ at the center. In fact, we talk about in our tradition that, that our sermons should point us back to Christ or point us from the salvific work of Christ into how we should live. We are to engage Jesus Christ again and again because as Mora read at the start of the service, he is the word of God who became flesh, who dwelled among us. He became human, one of us. And that central reality and the work that God did through his body of dying on the cross and then raising him from the dead shapes and changes everything about how we live. We come, sometimes we only sing those Christmas songs around Advent and Christmas and we focus on Jesus' incarnation there. In some sense, we should be singing those songs year long to remind us again and again, Jesus really did come in the flesh and that has changed everything. And John's saying to this church, don't get caught up in ideas that says God, God is somewhere off there in a the distance. <laughs> Recognize that God joined us in our humanity. And that has changed everything. The second is, how does the world respond? Verses 4 through 6, he's really talking about how, how there's this tension between the world and those who follow Jesus Christ. And that tension should be there. And if you live a life that the world says, oh, this is great, you're one of us, be aware. If the teaching that's being given to you says just blend in with the world around you, everything will be okay then, be very aware that this spirit, the spirit of that age, is probably not from God. There should be some friction or tension between us and the way we live as Christians and the world around us. Now, 
in our day and age, we live in a culture that says avoid suffering at all possible costs. In fact, we spend all sorts of money and resources on wellness projects and wellness books and on getting physically fit and all sorts of things to try and put off pain and suffering as long as we can. Many people in the world are saying, you know what, we should abort fetuses, those children, we should abort them if they have any sign of deformity. And some countries are bragging that they've gotten rid of Down syndrome. But the reality is it's come through abortion. It's a fear of suffering, a fear of something that seems broken to us, and it's wanting to wash life away if it has any hint of suffering within it. The rise of euthanasia fits in the same sense. We don't know how to live in a world where there's suffering. And our world says, just get rid of suffering. And the Christian faith calls us to live a different life in the midst of suffering, in the midst of brokenness. We should be feeling that type of tension in those places of of friction between the values that we're taught in church and the way we live as Christians in following Jesus Christ and the brokenness of the world around us. And if there's no tension between the world and us, something is wrong with the way we're living and what we have come to believe. And then there's an implicit test he gives. We don't pick it up in the English, but it is very clear in the Greek in this text. All the yous in this passage are plural yous. And part of what John's saying by this is, you're not left on your own. Ben, you're not left on your own. John, you're not left on your own. Don, you're not left on your own. None of us are left on our own. Part of the great gift of God's grace that comes through when John's trying to reassure his friends and his dear children is that you haven't been left on your own. God has put you together as a community that this work of discerning isn't just up to you. You have a whole community of people to help you discern. We've been given the gift of each other to learn from each other, to ask questions of each other, to say, I don't know how to figure this out. Is this God leading me? Would God call me to this? And to be able to share those type of questions with each other, to get into each other's lives so much that that we feel free to share those type of questions so that we're not kind of left to the whim of every blowing theology and idea that comes around us. And it's not just the people in this room, but we've been given the wisdom of the church. 2,000 years of church history that we can lean into and learn from and, and help each other discern through. Is this God speaking at this time, in this day and age, in this way? How do we live here and now? A gift to each other. John said that to the church in Ephesus, and I would reframe it just a little bit for us today. Given the slightly different context and and the history we've had, 
What history has shown is that there were heresies early on about whether Jesus was human at all, but history has also shown that heresies came along, those ways of thinking differently than what the Bible teaches, that said, well, Jesus really wasn't God. may have been a human being, but not really God. I remember a time in my own life where I bought into that. I was a teenager, and I can remember sitting with some of my friends in grade 10 and looking at them and saying, you guys are fools for believing that Jesus was God. How do you get there? This is alive and well, and so when we test the spirits today, it's not just saying, did Jesus come in the flesh? But it's understanding the whole person of Jesus and the whole story of what God did through him and is still doing through Jesus Christ. And even now, as we say on Ascension Sunday... He's interceding on our behalf, and he'll come back to make all things new. Where does Jesus fit into the story of what we talk about and the things we encounter in our life? Jesus is still central. And the second is the biblical rootedness. What they didn't have in Ephesus, we have as a gift now that we have both Old and New Testament. We have the full revelation of God made known in Jesus Christ and communicated through Scripture. And so as we begin discerning and questioning, we go back again and again to Scripture. What does Scripture say? And although there's times where there's passages that aren't clear, do you know Peter in one of his letters says, I know Paul's writings are difficult to understand. Peter actually says that. That's in the Bible, that some of the Bible is difficult to understand, and particularly Paul's writings. Okay. We can all take a sigh of relief. <sighs> But it doesn't eliminate the need for us to go back to Scripture again and again and again. In fact, that's what we were just celebrating this morning. As we celebrated this graduation from children's worship and Sunday school, what we're really celebrating is that God has given us the gift of Scripture that we can teach our kids, and our kids can be formed and shaped through the teaching of Scripture and we give those children's worship kids their own Bible so that they can read it and engage with it themselves. And they can do so in the context of a community and be assured that there's a community walking with them as they learn to walk this life as followers of Jesus Christ. Biblical rootedness. And when we're discerning, we should ask this question too. How does the teaching transform the ways we engage within the world? Paul, writing to the Roman church, a similar type of letter, ends up saying to them to be transformed. Don't, don't conform to the patterns of this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So as we wonder about the teachings of the world, we ask, how is this transforming me to live faithfully in the world? How is this transforming us as a people? In fact, what we end up saying in our core values here at first is transformative worship. When we gather as God's people, we expect the Word of God and the Spirit of God to shape us in such a way that we're transformed for the living we do outside of these walls. We recognize that encountering God leads to transformation, not to status quo, not to maintaining the things the way they've always done and the way we've always done them. They continually transform us again and again. And then this... How does the teaching lead us to love others as Jesus Christ loved us? 
If you read what follows in the, re- in the letter of 1 John, where he goes from here is to love one another because Christ died for us. And if we can't love the people we see, there's no way we're going to love God whom we don't see. And he spends the rest of chapter 4 unpacking this last kind of test. For testing the spirits, does it lead us to love others or does it lead us to push and exclude others? Does it lead us to harm others and, and push other people away from God or does it lead us to embody Christ's love in our relationships with others? And this becomes that test. Testing of the spirit and of the teaching around us. How are we being shaped to live and to love as Christ loved? Now, I don't know about you, but I hear all of this and I start going, how do we do this? <laughs> how, how do we live this out? How do we keep Christ central? Uh, how do we stay rooted in Scripture and understand Scripture? How, how do we get to that place where we're being transformed again and again? And, and how do we keep coming back to loving others? It can be tiring <laughs> to love others because we keep encountering our own selfishness and our own brokenness. And we keep encountering the brokenness and selfishness of others. How do we do this well? And that's why we're hearing this today. Today is Ascension Sunday. It's recognizing that day in which Christ rose and went to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And from there, it says he'll come to judge the living and the dead. But what we miss in the creed is also the teaching of the scripture right there is that right now he's interceding on our behalf. He knows the call of living faithfully in this world is more than we can handle. It's a struggle. It is difficult. We don't know what to do. And so he intercedes on our behalf. And what's more, Scripture teaches that because Christ ascended, he was able to send the Spirit to us. And so where this sermon leads us, where this text leaves us, is a longing for the coming of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit would fill us. That the Spirit would keep us rooted in, in Scripture and pointed towards Jesus Christ. That the, scripture would continue, that the Spirit would continue to transform us and would continue to help us to love one another. This is a longing for the Spirit of God to live within us. Let's pray.